Well, last week, we started chapter three of Exodus in which we found Moses in the land of Midian working as a shepherd. He's been there for 40 years, but then encounters God in the famous burning bush, a bush that seemed to be on fire, but is not burning up. It's not being consumed. And God speaks to Moses out of this fire, telling Moses that he is going to be the one to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt. And in just a couple of minutes, we're going to pick up their conversation in verse 13 of chapter 3 of Exodus. But before we get there, I just want to address a couple of questions that, that might come up at this point in the study. Perhaps like me, you've wondered why the Lord is deciding to liberate the Israelites now. I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, why, why now? They've been in slavery for around 80 years. That's a long time. I was thinking, why so long? Why not 40 years, 30, 20, 10? You'd think that would be bad enough. So why 80? And while we can't know for sure, there's a few possibilities I thought I'd share with you just to increase our understanding of what's going on at the time. I put a couple of the notes about it on your outline. Back in Genesis 15, when the Lord is sharing the future of Israel with Abraham, he tells Abraham about the time Israel will spend in Egypt, and then he says this, I put it on your outlines, in the fourth generation, they shall return here, that's the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were one of the people groups in the land of the Canaanites in Canaan, which was the promised land, whose culture and practices were an absolute abomination. They were wicked and evil beyond description. And as God has been working out his timing and deciding when the Israelites are going to be liberated from bondage in Egypt, among all of that, God is giving the Canaanite people groups, including the Amorites, 400 years to repent. 400 years to repent. And when they didn't repent, Joshua was commanded by the Lord to wipe them out. Wipe them out. So on the one hand, what God is doing is he's given these people groups in Canaan time to repent. Given them 400 years to repent, to be precise. Now, another reason for God's timing in his work with the Israelites could be because I think it took about 80 years before Israel became desperate enough to cry out to God in earnest and to reach the place where they would be willing to follow the deliverer that he would send them, speaking about Moses, of course. And you might think, well, Jeff, that's crazy. Surely it's not gonna take 80 years of slavery before people desperately want it to end. But when we get into the details of the Exodus in a couple of chapters, we're gonna find that the Israelites are a people who complain very, very quickly. And they're even going to have, after 80 years, they're gonna have second thoughts within a day of being freed from Egypt. They're gonna be saying, maybe we should just go back. Maybe we should just go back. So I think it's really obvious that they, they were only just barely ready to follow Moses after 80 years in slavery. Another parallel, much smaller time, but that always hits me is remember when we were studying Jonah, he's inside the belly of this likely whale shark for three days before he prays. Three days, that's, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Because sometimes we're just stubborn. So it could be 80 years is how long it took before they were finally ready to follow the deliverer God would send. And then the final possibility, I think, is related to the fact that the Exodus account is a picture of how the gospel works. And this is just a possibility in my thinking, but I think there's a good chance 
that 80 years would have been enough time for a whole generation to die out. In other words, after these 80 years, all the Israelites in Egypt would likely have been born into slavery, especially when you consider how their conditions and their slave labor would have likely shortened their lifespans. And that would be a picture of being born into sin, being born into bondage in the world. Egypt's a picture of the world. The slavery of the Israelites is a picture of the bondage and power of sin over all of us. And that's how we're all born. We're born into bondage. We're born into sin. The one sent to deliver Israel, Moses, would be one who had never been a slave. In fact, he was raised as royalty, yet out of love for his people, chose to identify as one of them and go to them in order that they might be set free. He was like them, yet very much unlike them at the same time, just like Jesus. So I think there's a good possibility that God's timing required Israel to be born into bondage and sin to complete this picture of the gospel through the book of Exodus. I think those are all possible explanations why God waited 80 years, but you can consider those as well and come to your own conclusions. And then just a quick note about time periods. Now you might be confused because perhaps you've always heard that Israel was in slavery for 400 years or 430 years in Egypt but that's not actually what those verses in the Bible say. Those verses are related to how long Israel was out of the promised land. They were in Egypt for at least four centuries, but they were only enslaved in Egypt for around 80 years. And if you wanna dig into the issue of exactly how long the Israelites were in Egypt, I put a link on your outline that you can go check out in your own time in your own studies from Answers in Genesis, which is just a really good resource that's gonna clear it up, but I didn't wanna take the 20 minutes to nerd out in this message right now. The Moses that we're about to talk about today, the Moses that fled Egypt 40 years ago, those two men, the one from 40 years ago and the one who's been in Midian for 40 years are very, very different people. 40 years ago, Moses had killed an Egyptian because he was so gung-ho, he was so confident that he could lead the Israelites to freedom. Stephen in Acts chapter seven told us that Moses just assumed that the Israelites would welcome him as their deliverer. So what happened over the past 40 years to that Moses? Where'd he go? What's the same thing that happens to you and I over time if we're even remotely honest with ourselves? Over time, we get to see and understand more about who we really are and who the Lord really is. And our view of ourselves decreases and our view of the Lord increases. When we're young and and serving the Lord, we're frustrated that we're not doing greater things for God. We're frustrated that he's not entrusting us with greater ministry tasks. And then when we get older and we've been serving the Lord for a while, we're amazed that the Lord does anything through us, right? And that's because time has a way of revealing my issues and my brokenness and and my sinfulness. The years pass and I'm astounded by the thoughts I still have, the sins I still struggle with, the temptations I battle that I thought I'd be done with years ago, the lack of self-control that still rears its ugly head more often than I would care to admit. And if, if we're honest, time humbles us and time demands that we not esteem ourselves too highly. But on the flip side, time also has a way of revealing the faithfulness of God, 
the kindness of God, the goodness of God. And as the years pass, I'm astounded by the grace of God in my life. His grace is so much greater than I realized. It's so much bigger. And his love is constant, we learn, in a way made all the more glorious in light of the inconsistency of my own devotion. Time exalts the Lord and demands that we esteem him above all else. In other words, time teaches us that we're worse than we thought we were, but that the Lord is far more wonderful than we ever imagined he was when we were younger. And those realizations, if you've had them, are not depressing. They're, they're liberating and they're a blessing because they cause me not to hope in myself, not to look to myself, but to rather hope in the Lord. It makes me so grateful for the love and the grace of God. And I don't think there's a feeling in the world that I want more of than the feeling of simply being loved by the Lord. So would you write this down? Time exposes our brokenness and God's goodness. Time exposes our brokenness and God's goodness. Over the past 40 years in Midian working as a shepherd, Moses had come to realize the truth that, that he was actually pretty useless. God didn't need him and there's nothing he could do on his own to save the Israelites. And now that he has an accurate view of himself, now Moses is ready to actually become useful to the Lord. And the same is true of you and I. When, when we think that we're useful to God, we think that he can count on us, we're not really all that useful. But when we understand that we don't actually have anything that God needs, then we're ready to be dependent on him. And that's where the power is. That's when we become useful to the Lord. When we think we're useful, we think, Lord, you should use me because of, of what I've got. This package, this set of talents, these abilities, you should use me, Lord. It'd be a slam dunk. God says, I, I can't because you're gonna rely on yourself. When we say, Lord, I'm, I'm pretty useless, God says, oh, okay, now we're getting close. Because if I ask you to do something, you're gonna to have to depend on me, which means you're actually gonna tap into my power. Then we're gonna get some things done. Then you're gonna be effective. Moses is now in a place where God can use him because Moses knows he can't come up with a plan to free the Israelites. He knows that he can't make it happen himself. The apostle Paul wrote about this to the Corinthian church. It's on your outlines. And he said, for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. God loves to use the foolish things of the world. That's why I'm standing here preaching to you today. And he does that, that's way too loud, Dad. You shouldn't have laughed that loud. And he does that because God gets all the glory in that situation. It's clear that he is the power behind the person. So make a note of this. The more we recognize our need for God's power, the more of God's power we will have. The more we recognize our need for God's power, the more of God's power we will have. It's when we don't think we need him that we end up being powerless. The more we depend on him, the more power we have. It's the exact opposite of how the world works. 
So let's pick it up. Chapter 3, verse 13. It says, then Moses said to God, we're picking up their conversation with the burning bush. Moses says to God, indeed, well, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So Moses is not asking for a password here. He's not concerned that when he approaches the Israelites in Egypt and says, I've been sent by the Lord, that they're going to say, well, okay, then what's his name? Moses is asking the question because he doesn't know. (laughs) And the implication in the text is actually that the Israelites in Egypt did know. And that view is bolstered by the fact that the Israelites won't ever ask Moses what the name of God is. It's most likely that Moses asks the question simply because he wants the answer and probably in part because he doesn't want to embarrass himself in front of those who did know God's name. Then we go on and we read in verse 14, the Lord answered, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. We talked about this in detail last week if you missed it. This is the divine name of God in the first person tense. And as we said last week in the Bible, names generally reveal something about the character of a person. And we're so blessed because we don't have only the name of God here to reveal more of his character but we have Jesus, the exact representation of the Father. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If we wanna know what God is like, if we wanna know what the Father is like, all we have to do is study what Jesus was like and we'll have our answer. And when Jesus was on the earth, he expounded upon the divine name by taking I am who I am and making seven I am statements that are recorded in the Gospel of John. So if you've ever thought, okay God, I am, well, well I am what? Jesus gave us the answer. In John's Gospel he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And then in each of those instances, Jesus explained what he meant by each of those statements. It's a wonderful study this week. If you wanna just take some time and dig into the verses and the teachings that Jesus shares around each of those I am statements in the Gospel of John. Well, God continues speaking to Moses in verse 14. And he, the Lord, said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel. So say this, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me. So again, what we see here is that it is so important to God that his people understand that he remembers his promises. He's not just into big titles, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. He's saying this because it is desperately important to the Lord that his people understand that he remembers his promises. He wants the Israelites to know that he remembers the promises he made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and that he intends to keep those promises. Saying, so say this to the elders of Israel, Moses, 
I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us and now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. It wasn't God's plan to have the Israelites go out into the wilderness for a few days and then come right back into slavery. That wasn't the plan. God told Moses to make this request because he knew it would demonstrate the coldness and hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Even after 80 straight years of slavery, Pharaoh would still deem this request to be unreasonable. Verse 20, so saying, this is the Lord speaking, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. God says, I'm going to work wonders that will strike the Egyptians and force Pharaoh to let you go. In fact, the Egyptians will gladly give you their riches just to get rid of you. Let's keep rolling into chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, well, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, oh, the Lord has not appeared to you. Now Moses claims that the Israelites won't listen to him. They won't believe him. And the Lord is going to respond by giving Moses three signs to perform for the Israelites. Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And I love this. And Moses fled from it. You just picture the scene in your head. Throw it on the ground. Okay. And it becomes a snake. Ah! That's exactly what happens. Moses runs away. I think the Lord was kind of enjoying this because then the Lord said to Moses, well, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Moses just ran from the snake and now God says, pick it up, take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it and it became a rod in his hand that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. So that's just put it into your coat like Napoleon style. And he put his hand in his bosom and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Now the original Hebrew word there is almost certainly mistranslated to refer to leprosy or Hansen's disease as it's known today. The description of it being like snow is not in reference to the color of his hand, it's in reference to the flakiness of snow. So the idea is that Moses' hand became encrusted, essentially, with some sort of flaky skin disease, which was known widespread in Egypt at the time and, and was terminal. It was incurable, and it was viewed as a divine punishment. So the implication of Moses being able to do this would be that Moses had been imbued with power by God, the power to assign divine punishment 
and the power to remove divine punishment at will. This would have been a big deal. And here's what I love about this. Moses feels like he's not equipped for the task and the Lord addresses Moses' concerns by basically saying, I'm with you, that's all you need. Well, what about tangible resources? And God's like, I'll use the stick in your hand and your hand. That's all I need, that's all I need. Let's go get this thing done. Listen, if God is with you and you're walking in agreement with him, here's what you learn from this. You already have everything you need to accomplish the tasks that God has called you to, no matter how overwhelming they might seem. God has given you what you need to excel in your job. God has given you what you need to be a witness for him, to raise your kids, to be the husband or wife your spouse needs, to walk faithfully and fulfillingly through your singleness. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, he's given you what you need to do it. But we only understand that when we begin to rely on God's power. Because what we have is not extraordinary. Moses had a rod and a hand. These are not extraordinary items. It's God's power that made them extraordinary. So would you write this down? God's power can work miracles in the ordinary. God's power can work miracles in the ordinary. You might look and say, I don't have enough. But listen, if God is in it, it's more than enough. If God is in it, it's more than enough. Then verse 8, the Lord says, Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, so if they're not convinced by the first two signs for some reason, God guarantees that they're going to be convinced by the third sign. Because this third sign is going to be an undeniable act of God undeniable act of God. He says that you shall take water from the river, that would be the Nile, and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. So it's gonna be water in whatever vessel you use to take it out the river. Water as you pour it over, as soon as it hits the ground, it's gonna turn to blood. This would be huge because this is the Nile we're talking about. This is the life blood of Egypt. And when this goes down, this event, when Moses gives this sign to the Israelites, it's going to mark the transition to where God begins to take over and God begins to enter this confrontation. And the showdown is going to shift very quickly from Moses versus Pharaoh to God versus Pharaoh. And that's going to be significant because in Egyptian religious thinking, Pharaoh was a god. He was the physical incarnation of the god Horus, the son of Ra. And then when he died, his son would take over that mantle and his son would become the physical incarnation of Horus and so forth. So when we reach this point of the story, things truly become a contest between the god of the Israelites and the gods of Egypt. And that's part of the reason that Pharaoh's going to be so stubborn. In his eyes, in the eyes of the Egyptians, He's a god. He is part of the pantheon of Egyptian gods that keep everything in order in the land of Egypt. It's his power that makes the rains come in rain season, that brings the harvest. It's his power that keeps the Nile River flowing and everything in balance. So Pharaoh is resistant because by conceding to the request of the Israelites, he would be acknowledging that the god of the Israelites is greater than the god of Egypt which was him, greater than the gods 
of Egypt. And this is why he fights so hard to, to hold on to it. He doesn't want to give up that mantle without a fight. So why would God, when you think about this though too, why is God going to turn to glorified magic tricks to demonstrate his power to the Israelites? It's likely because Egypt at this time is a land steeped in occultic magic. Steeped in occultic magic. We're going to see that when Moses goes to confront Pharaoh that there are magicians using occultic power to do real magic. They're not card tricks. They're not sleight of hand. They're real demonically empowered magic. And so the source of this magic that, that permeated the land of Egypt was believed to be the gods of Egypt. And their whole thinking in Egypt was Egypt is prosperous. Egypt is the greatest nation on earth because the gods have favored Egypt. The gods bless Egypt. And by one-upping the magicians of Egypt, God was making a statement again about his power being greater than the power of the gods of Egypt. And this would have been especially apparent because Moses is not a magician. It's not like God says, do these things, and Moses is like, that's great, because I loved magic as a kid. I had a kit when I was in the palace and everything, and this is a chance, Lord, you're using the, the gifts that you've given me. He doesn't know anything about being a magician, so, so he would have had no ceremony, no showmanship. All Moses can do is just follow the instructions that God gave him to the letter. He wouldn't have performed any rituals. He wouldn't have chanted any incantations or employed any occultic techniques. All he can do is like, how, how do we know that you're sent from God? That's, that's it. That's all he does. We're, we're going to find that sometimes when Moses follows God's instructions, Moses doesn't even know exactly what's going to happen. God just says, hey, when they ask you for another sign, do this. Moses can do that. And sometimes stuff happens and he's like, holy smokes, that is amazing because he didn't even know that was going to happen. We're going to see that. There's a, a supernatural showdown that's gonna to begin to unfold here between the God of the Hebrews, the living almighty God, and the gods of Egypt. Verse 10, then Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. According to the original Hebrew, Moses is claiming that he cannot speak well, and that's all we know. I just wanna let you know that. Some will say that he had a stuttering issue or a lisp. Side note, how incredibly cruel is the word lisp when you think about it, right? Some of you got that, okay. But all those types of suggestions are just speculation. They're speculation. All the text tells us is that Moses is claiming to not be good at speaking. And I gotta tell you, I for one am highly skeptical of Moses' claim. Because in Acts 7.23, Stephen the Apostle tells us, it's on your outlines, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was what? Mighty in words and deeds. So what Stephen is saying is that during the first 40 years of his life, when he was in Egypt, Moses had grown into a great public speaker, quote, mighty in words. And yet here in Exodus 4.10, we find Moses claiming to be not eloquent, slow of speech, and slow of tongue. Was Stephen mistaken? I don't think so. I personally think Moses is being less than honest with God at this moment, and we're gonna find out why I hold that view before we get to the end of today's study, so just hold on to that thought. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth, 
Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and, and then underline this, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Again, as he did in, in chapter three, God doesn't try to boost Moses' self-esteem by saying, oh, that's not true, Moses. I've, I've heard some of your speeches. They were super good. You're, you're a great public speaker. You just gotta believe in yourself. God doesn't try to boost his self-esteem. The Lord reassures Moses by telling him, listen, I make every man from nothing. I decide who gets to be good at public speaking. And so if I say I'll be with your mouth, that's all you need to know. That's how God reassures him. When we're overwhelmed by our inadequacies, God does not seek to reassure us by telling us how wonderful we are. He doesn't come to us like a life coach and tell us how great we are. He reassures us still today by reminding us that he's with us and that he's in us. Our confidence and our hope is not meant to be rooted in ourselves, but in the greatness of the God who is with us. The fact that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. The Christian doesn't have self-esteem, the Christian has God-esteem. In other words, the confidence of the Christian is rooted in God, not in self. That's a very big difference between why the Christian is confident versus why the non-believer is confident. Non-believer is delusional enough to be confident in themselves. We suffer from no such delusion. We had to give that up in order to receive the gospel. And I think this is a wonderful word for us as it relates to evangelism, sharing the gospel with people. We know that God wants us to do it. We know that the Holy Spirit will even prompt us to talk to people, but so often we dismiss or we ignore those promptings because we think, well, I don't know what to say. I'm not gonna be able to answer their questions. They won't even listen to me. You know, Jesus' disciples had the same concerns when he told them that they would soon testify and be his witnesses in front of hostile courts and judges and mobs. And here's what Jesus told them to assuage their fears. He didn't say, you guys don't need to worry. You're all great public speakers. You've been through my course. You're gonna do fine. He doesn't say that. He said, I think I put it on your outlines. He said, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And if you want to experience the power of God, I really mean this, if you're just thinking, man, it's just been so long since I had that feeling that God was, was working through me, God was moving through me, that just electric sensation of being used by the Lord. If you want to experience the power of God, then step out in faith when his spirit prompts you to talk to someone or ask them a question or share the gospel. Step out in faith and you'll be amazed how the Lord will work through you. You'll be amazed at the experience that you will have as you realize that God is keeping his promise and he's telling you what to say in that moment. And I'm not saying that if you do that every time they'll be like, oh my goodness, truly the Lord is in this place. Let me repent. Let me go get my household so they can be saved too. And you're thinking, wow, this, this is incredible. One minute I was just talking to them about essential oils and then here we are. This is unbelievable. That doesn't mean that that's going to happen. It means that you're going to have that awareness that God is speaking through you and for that time you were right in the center of the will of God. That's the feeling that you're gonna get to have. When we say, Lord, I'm not good at talking. I believe that today the Lord's response is still, 
Who's made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. And if you get nervous speaking to people when the Spirit prompts you to do that, you might want to memorize that verse and you can pray it. You can stand on that promise right before you go and speak to them in obedience. But that's not a good enough answer for Moses. Moses doesn't say, amen, amen, I'm with you. He doesn't do that. Verse 13, but he, Moses, said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So let's get down to the bottom of the issue right here. After Moses shared his apprehensions, God assured Moses that he would be with him. He even gave Moses three signs to perform that would prove to everyone that God was with him. The staff turning into a serpent, the hand becoming leprous, and the water turning to blood. But now Moses is finally honest and just blurts out the truth behind all of these concerns and questions. The truth is, I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. Send someone else, literally anyone else, Lord. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go. And that tells us what's really been going on the whole time. The issue isn't a speech impediment. The issue is that he just doesn't want to do it. He just doesn't want to do it. So write this down and we'll talk about it a bit more. Moses was not being humble. He was being defiant and faithless. He's not being humble. He's being defiant and faithless. And really tune in here because one of the great traps for Christians is is false humility. If I just walk around talking about how much I suck all the time, then that's a real state of humility. That's not what real humility is. So, So check out what happened with Moses. In chapter three, he said, who am I? In other words, I'm nobody, I'm not qualified. Then he said, I don't even know your name, God. I don't have enough information. Then in chapter four, he said, well, the Israelites won't believe me when I tell them you came and met with me. Uh, They won't listen to me. Then he said, well, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not good with words. And then finally, Moses said, well, I just don't want to do it. Literally, send anyone else, send whoever else you want, just not me. Now, it's good to have a humble view of oneself. That's a good thing. But when God calls us to do something, to step out in faith, we do it because we trust in him and his power. But Moses isn't doing that. He's being defiant and faithless because, get this, this is the big key, he doesn't believe that God's power can overcome his personal inadequacies. He does not believe that God's power can overcome his personal inadequacies. And when we refuse to believe the promises of God, we're doing the same thing. We're being defiant and faithless when we refuse to believe that God can keep his promises in our lives. Whether we realize it or not, we're claiming that our inadequacies are greater than God's power. And they're not. And I believe that when we choose to hold on to that false belief, it's offensive to God. It's offensive to him. It's not just wrong, it's offensive, which is why we read this in verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Catch that, it says so. That means it's directly connected to the thing that just happened. What just happened, Moses said, send someone else. And what does the Bible tell us about the anger of the Lord? It says the Lord is what to anger? Slow, slow to anger. It takes a lot 
to frustrate him. But here we see the Lord angry with Moses because no matter how much the Lord assures Moses that he will be with him, Moses still says, "Eh, that's not enough. I don't want to do this. It's not good enough. I'll be with you. I'm God. Still, send someone else. So write this down. This is huge. God expects us to believe that his power is greater than our circumstances and inadequacies. God expects us to believe that his power is greater than our circumstances and inadequacies. God does not expect that when it comes to those who claim to be his children, that he's going to have to spend immense amounts of energy and effort convincing us that his power is greater than our circumstances or inadequacies. He expects that we will just believe that because we've put our trust in him as our savior. So surely, logically, we understand by now that his power is greater than our circumstances. He saved us from death. He got us past that circumstance. So he expects us to believe that he can get us past all the other ones. I don't think God can do that in my life. I just got too many issues. Well, stop focusing on yourself and start focusing on God. I don't think God can do that in my situation. Things are just too far gone. They're just too messed up. Stop focusing on your circumstances and start focusing on God. We keep reading. And he, the Lord, said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? Well, I know he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God, and you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. See, what's happening here, you got to understand, is God is indulging Moses. He's being undeservedly gracious to Moses by saying, oh, you don't want to speak? You don't want to do this? You're scared? Okay, I'll send your brother Aaron with you. In fact, I've already called Aaron. He's on his way to meet you, and I've made his heart inclined to help you. He's going to be happy when he sees you. He's going to be excited about doing this with you. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God works through individuals. If you want to know what political system God is into, he's into monarchies. He's the king of kings. He's into a single leader. That's the way that God works, especially through the Old Testament. That got a little bit different once the church was invented because the church was a new thing. But throughout the Old Testament, especially when it comes to politics, he's into monarchies. So he worked through individuals. He works through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, and on and on and on the list goes, the judges, etc. And this is no exception. Moses is God's guy. Moses is the singular leader that God has chosen for this work of deliverance. Aaron is not Robin to Moses' Batman. God says, I'm going to speak to you, Moses, and then you can tell Aaron what I told you. So just as I spoke to you, you will speak to Aaron. That's what God is saying when he says to Moses, you shall be to Aaron as God. That's what he means. While Moses is the leader in God's eyes, Moses and Aaron are going to quickly become co-leaders in the eyes of the people. And much later on, we're going to find this leads to some catastrophic problems involving a golden calf. That's all going to be Aaron's fault. And here's the lesson. Whenever God makes a concession for you, 
Whenever you're like, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. And God says, okay, go ahead if that's what you really want. Or you say, well, I really want to do it. I know, I know you've told me not to do it, Lord, but I really want to do it. I really want to do it. I want to do it. And God's like, okay, go ahead, do it. Whenever you think you got God to make a concession for you, you will learn sooner or later if you're paying attention that whatever that concession is that he's made for you, it's a step down from what his plan was for you. His plan is always better. There has never been and there will never be a situation in your life or my life where our plan was better than God's plan. That's never going to happen. We're never gonna get to the end and be like, see Lord, I told you my plan was better. That's never ever going to happen. So just keep that in mind when you're bugging God and you don't wanna do things his way and be concerned when God says, okay, go ahead. Because that's code for you're about to learn a lesson. It's not gonna be a good thing. It's like, go ahead, touch the hot stove, kid. Oh, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. Now, without getting sidetracked, you students of the Bible are gonna be interested in, in just a couple of quick things here that I need to mention. This is where the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron originates, the priesthood of the Levites. Moses and Aaron are both from the tribe of Levi. And it happens as the result of this concession that God makes to Moses. So understand this, the Aaronic priesthood is not the original design or intent of the Lord. Up to this point in history, the political leader and the high priest, essentially, those two roles have been held by the same person. Whether they were official or not, they were functionally held by the same person. Abraham was both, Isaac was both, Jacob was both, Joseph was both. Moses was intended to serve in both roles as the political leader of the nation and as the high priest of the nation. However, because of this concession, the roles get split. Moses becomes the political leader while Aaron becomes the high priest. And this establishes a new norm in the nation of Israel that continues through the Old Testament where the high priest and the political leader can never be the same person. The priesthood and the royal line are kept separate for the rest of the Old Testament. They're split. And it's gonna stay that way. It stays that way until Jesus comes, the one who's going to be both, both. Now he obviously hasn't fulfilled both roles entirely. In his first coming, he was coming as the high priest when he comes again with his church to rule for the millennium. That's gonna be his kingship. That's gonna be the political leadership aspect taken care of. But all this is why the book of Hebrews does not describe Jesus as a high priest in the order of Aaron. If you've read Hebrews, you'll know that it says Jesus came as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, that's right, Melchizedek. And if you recall our Genesis study, you'll recall that Melchizedek was both the high priest and the king of Salem, Jerusalem. Salem becomes Jerusalem. And when we studied his interactions with Abraham, we learned that Melchizedek was a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus in the flesh. And if you're not tracking with me, go listen to our message online on Genesis 14. So all that, just to let you know, you students of the Bible, that this is where the political side of leadership and the priesthood are split in Israel. And again, just to let you know, the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, 
not God's original plan or design. It's the result of this concession. God's original design is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who's both a high priest and a political leader. Jesus comes as both, like Melchizedek. Aaron and Moses only split here because God makes a concession for Moses, and it doesn't make things better. So wrap up with this. If you don't feel equipped for a task that God has called you to in your life right now, I would encourage you to take some time in this coming time of prayer and worship we're gonna have and just in faith, thank God that he's given you everything you need. If you feel overwhelmed relationally, maritally, parentally, at your place of work, at your place of school, whatever it is, would you take some time and just thank God that he's given you everything you need? You might look in your hand and say, I don't have anything to work with here. You have no idea what God can do simply with what's in your hands. It's not that you need more or that you need something else. You need God to breathe his power into what you already have because he's given you everything you need. And then thank him that your hope is not in who you are. It's not in what you have, but it's in the fact that he's with you. He's with you and he's gonna make everything you have everything you need. Remember to not be afraid of stepping out in faith and starting a conversation, sharing the gospel. Claim that promise of God that he will give you the words to say. And if you want to feel your faith come to life, do that the next time the Holy Spirit prompts you. Step out in faith and tell someone about the Lord. And then finally, just remember that God expects us to believe that his power is greater than our circumstances and inadequacies. He expects that from his people, those who consider themselves to be his children. And when we refuse to agree with God, we're not being humble, we're being defiant. When we say I can't when God says we can, we're not being humble, we're being defiant, we're disagreeing with God. And if we need to repent today for not believing the promises of God, let's do that. And then let's thank him for being perfectly faithful. Let's ask him to, to fill us with faith so that we can honor him with the faith that he deserves. And so with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the clarity that your word gives, for the example that your word gives. And thank you that this mighty man of God that we're reading about, Moses, thank you that he starts out this journey making a catastrophic mistake. And then even 40 years later, he's faithless. He's defiant. But Lord, you, you look past all of that and you see what you created him to be and what you put in him. And so Father, I thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. And you look past all our inadequacies. You look past all our stubbornness, all our defiance, all the times we lack the faith that we should have and you look at what you put in us and you know what you created us to be and you call us to trust you and to step into that. And so Father, this evening, we just repent for any times we've not believed the promises that you've given us. Any time that we've chosen to disagree with you or hold under the belief that we're somehow the exception to your promises, Lord, we know that we are not. We know that you've already freed us from the greatest, most difficult circumstance, death and sin. And so if you can do that, everything else is easy. Lord, thank you that it's not about who we are or what's in our list of talents and abilities, but it's about you and that you're in us and that you're with us, God. 
And so we hope in you. Our hope is in the Lord, nothing less. And so we are confident, confident in whatever situation we're in, Lord. Father, I pray that right now you would just release faith where it is needed, that you might be honored by our faith. Lord, that you would give comfort where it is needed and that you would give assurance where it is needed, not with the words that we are wonderful, but that you are with us. You are with us, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.